It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe, coming to you from my old closet, which is my new office. Same thing. Good acoustics, though, I think, because of the various flannel shirts and suit jackets. We were planning to bring you an episode with Dave Holmes this week. That will appear next week. We pulled a different one together instead, given the times we're living in. We are in the midst of a global pandemic as we record this episode. There's a lot of uncertainty and fear, anxiety, depression, and we've been thinking about what we can do to be of use to our listeners. We're thinking about why people listen in the first place. And one of the reasons you've told us is open, honest talk about mental health in general. That's what we do. We believe in talking about mental health, not hiding it in the darkness. And right now, that means talking about the stress and fear that go with COVID-19. On this episode, we thought some familiar voices might be good to hear, might be comforting. People who have been on the show before. These are people who have dealt with clinical depression firsthand. Anna Marie Cox is a writer and journalist. She's a political analyst on TV. She's been on the show a couple of times. Anna lives with her husband in Minneapolis. We got together while being physically, safely apart the other day. We talked about what's important right now. As a person in recovery, you know, my life depends on community and making connections and being of service. And so I've been having to do that just out of the selfish need to stay alive for, well, nine years last week, actually. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, it, it is interesting to see kind of the rest of the world come to realize that those are skills that they need to practice to also literally stay alive as well. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. Um, recovery is not easy. Um, hard things are hard. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, those of us who are practicing that kind of program, a spiritual program, you know, we just we just have been lifting that weight more. I went to a 12-step meeting, like a real-life, like in-person 12-step meeting, the Saturday before the 15 days to stop the spread thing uh-huh. was announced, and no one was there. My heart was broken. I started crying. I was, I felt alone and scared and um, all of the things that you might feel. But then I did the thing that I've been taught to do, which is I started reaching out and Lo and behold, not only did I get the kind of support that I needed, you know, basically people just willing to listen and say, yeah, that sounds horrible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But also people telling me, you know, well, I have this Zoom meeting I'm going to call me anytime if that's not soon enough. I have this Zoom meeting, you know, people just, you know, offered all kinds of help. You need help setting it up. Like I actually have the tech part down, which uh-huh. maybe means I should have been more on top of it to begin with. But if you're if you're meeting over Zoom, does that give you the complete experience of community and, and connecting with other people if it's through a, a flat screen? So I go back and look at the history of the 12 step programs, which started with Bill W. back in 1935. And they didn't have Zoom, obviously, but they also didn't have like mobile phones and the first AA people like wrote letters to each other. Wow. And just exchange stories that way. And the main office in New York sent people copies of the big book. And so people got sober long before there were meetings. 
And I think it's the desire to stay sober and the desire that to connect that sort of matters more than like, am I getting the real experience? Do you find yourself reaching out to more people who aren't in recovery as well? Yeah. And I feel like that's almost, I mean, that's a part of, I mean, my, my recovery is my life. My life is a recovery. So those things are all kind of mixed together. And I'm now just also realizing that, um, I mean, I can bring it all back to 12 steps because the 12th step is, you know, having had a spiritual experience, we shared this with other people. And I wanted to add something else about the program, which is beneficial. So there's the community, which I think is again, the most obvious, but then there's also the principle of living one day at a time, which we, again, everyone is being forced into yes. right now because <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and we're going to, ha- we have to just kind of be where we are. And there's, it's, we can't make plans. Um, we could have expectations and fixate on expectations, but I think a lot of people are beginning to understand that to fixate on your expectations and to fixate on desired outcomes will just wind up disappointing you. <laughs> well, this is a thing too that I mean, I'm glad you brought up the one day at a time thing. This is something that that I'm trying to come to grips with. Like, oh, what day of the week is it? It doesn't matter. It's just another day of the week. I know I'm going to wake up. My family is going to be in the house with me. And then we'll do things around the house until it's time to, you know, have dinner and see if there's any Coen Brothers movie we haven't watched. And then we'll go to sleep and do it all over again. And it's really hard just knowing that we don't know how long this is going to go on. And it's just going to be a repetitive thing. So I tell myself, well, I'll just take this one day at a time like some of my friends do. But then I wake up and it's the exact same thing. And it's like, well, what's the point in doing one, at a, one day at a time if it just resets to the whole thing the next morning? It's more like Groundhog Day at a time. Well, what is the moral of Groundhog Day? The moral of Groundhog Day is that you need to find uh, some meaning and connection with other people in order to break what I assume to be an unhealthy cycle that you're trapped in. Right. And also that we can make different choices every day. Okay. And I think our days are more different perhaps than we give them credit for or give ourselves credit for. Um, again, I am very aware of, of what my days are like because I kind of have to be. And also I'm aware of the choices that I make because every day I have to make the choice not to drink. Right. So every day is a day that I, I could make a different choice Yeah. and it's a new and powerful choice every day. Every day it's a new and powerful choice. And I would say every day it's a new and powerful choice to stay home every day. You are making a decision that you could make differently. And you're not. And today, that decision to stay home is saving other people's lives. And you have done that. If you stay home all day today, you will potentially save numerous lives. Well, that's what I've been telling my kids is that when a, a big crisis emerges somewhere in the world, one of the hardest thoughts is I can't do anything about this. You know, there's a, a tsunami in Asia somewhere. And I'm, I can send money, but I can't really do anything about it. And now everybody in the world has been asked to do something about it. And it almost appears like the thing we could do about it is nothing. But it is, you're right, it's an active choice. Our part is to stay home and to you know, not provide one more highway for this virus to, to travel on. 
And that's a powerful choice. Mm -hmm. And that's a powerful choice that you should give yourself credit for making. And I think that a lot of people who are sober tend to stop giving themselves credit for that again. Again, what becomes an instinctive choice, what becomes a choice or can become a choice that you make without thinking. And that's, there's a benefit to be able to, to you know, not thinking every day uh, about the choice not to drink, but also it's still a powerful choice. And I think like, so when I go to, I think I've shared this with you before, which is that when I go to bed at night, if I choose to think about it, I can recall that God has been present in my life today because I didn't drink. I would say that you've, you've had a spiritual experience in your life today if you don't go outside or if you don't, if you practice social distancing. You've had a spiritual experience in the sense that you have had a connection with something greater than yourself, whether you, you realize it or not. You have made a connection with what I think we can recognize, maybe not as a you know, God high up in the sky, but a power greater than ourselves, uh-huh. which is community, which is you know, caring for each other. Right. That is a powerful thing. Well, and I think that could be really powerful for people who've dealt with depression because, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the lies that depression tells you is you're a solitary weirdo case. Nobody else is going through, you know, what you're going through and you need to cut off from everybody else. And so the trick is kind of threading the needle between the the literal in-meat space kind of cutting off on your own and still somehow connecting to the world the trick there is that now we all have something in common. Like we all, mm-hmm. we all obviously are not lone weirdos. Our predicament is globally shared. Yeah, and I would say that um, to think of it from a more specifically depression point of view, although you know I do consider sort of all my recoveries to be kind of part of the same recovery. Sure. If I choose not to go and be unsafe today, if I choose to practice social distancing and I choose to not harm myself and I choose to make a connection even if I don't feel like it, I have had, I have experienced something powerful in my life. I have had an experience that is beyond myself. Yeah. And I think people who, who are in the midst of depression should remember that every day, even if they're not social distancing too, which is that if you made it through the day, you dodged the bus, mm-hmm. you know, like the bus was coming for you. And you got out of the way. And that's a miracle. That's like an experience that you you should celebrate. Yeah. And I know other people who don't live with depression or, or live with mental disorders can can sometimes not understand that that that, that they think that, that sounds morbid. Mm-hmm. You know? No. But it it's not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> you know? Like I made it through today without harming myself, you know? I made it through the day and and I did something that was scary for me, maybe. Here's a scene from Groundhog Day that I thought about after talking to Anna. Phil, Bill Murray's character, is living the same day over and over again, thousands of times. And that includes running into an old high school classmate, Ned Ryerson, who's played by Stephen Tobolowsky. Ned, every time, through this constant looping of time that Phil is stuck in, always tries to sell him insurance and is kind of a pest about it. Phil has pushed Ned away every time, but this time he makes a different choice. Phil? Phil Connors, I thought it was you. Ned Ryerson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have missed you so much. I don't know where you're headed, but 
Can you call in sick? Uh, <laughs> I gotta get going. Uh, <laughs> it's good to see you, Phil. <laughs> okay, we'll travel now, virtually, from Minneapolis to Los Angeles. John Ross Bowie is an actor and writer. He played Barry Kripke on The Big Bang Theory. John and his wife, the actor and writer Jamie Denbo, appeared on our show last season. Hi, John. Hi. We connected through Zoom, the conferencing app. The connection sometimes got a little spotty. John and Jamie have two kids, and their 10-year-old son had some homework that needed to be figured out. Um, it's going to have to wait, honey. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so proud of you. That's awesome. I finish my home. I'm ready to miss my first page. Okay, great. But I only have 30 more minutes. You're going to do it. You're going to be okay. Don't worry. Um, in fact, as long as we're doing this, let me put my blazer back on. John was dressed up for our audio-only interview. Iron shirt, tie, he looked sharp, just because he felt like it. He wasn't leaving the house. I am uh, <laughs> trying to look my best. I shaved today, trying to hold it together here. Was that just you managing homework on top of all this? Homeschooling, essentially, yeah. It's been fascinating, and for all its frustrations, I have to say that um, and I, I very briefly taught math when I was out of college, like for one semester, but there's something really, even for an English major, there's something great about math because there's just no, no discussion, you know, mm -hmm. you're right or you're wrong. Top of the line question. How are you holding up? I, I, I'm doing okay, actually. And I'm, um, managing my time pretty well. Uh, I, my mornings are, I get up, I make some breakfast. I, um, I attend to my son, the younger one, the 10 year olds, uh, homeschooling. My daughter, the 12 year old is mostly, she's doing online learning on a zoom meeting, much like this one. Um, and that takes her up till about 1230. She just finished up. Um, we just had, she goes to a parochial school and we just had a virtual like 15 minute mass. And I'm not a, a particularly religious guy, but it was incredibly soothing, um, really? to, to just sit with a bunch of other families, even on a Zoom meeting. How are you holding up? I'm doing okay. Um, yeah, we, we, we're a full family, we're a full house, but we have enough rooms that we can get away from each other for the moment. So uh, yeah. I think we're gonna be okay. Yeah, I, same. You tweeted that your whole lifetime of anxiety and depression actually made you fairly well equipped for this moment. Talk a little bit about how you came to that realization. What I meant by that was when you've got this pervasive simmer of anxiety and paranoia that's going on a lot of the time, one of the things that makes that difficult is, the, is your rational brain saying you have nothing to be afraid of, calm down, and then you have two halves of your brain basically yelling at each other nonstop. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when there is an incredibly valid source for your existential dread, <laughs> it is paradoxically soothing <laughs> to um, consider such things. So, you know, I wake up in the morning, I feel anxious, and I realize, well, I have a reason to be anxious. Yeah. My, um, you know, I'm from New York. I'm fr I grew up in New York City. What's happening there is shattering my heart. And it is, I, I find myself relieved that my parents aren't alive. You know, they were both, they were both in Manhattan till to the end of their days. and. I'm actively relieved they're not living through this right now. Mm. And 
with all this stuff going on, the anxiety is a normal reaction. It doesn't make me crazy. I'm probably feeling the same amount of anxiety that people without anxiety disorders are feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the that's one of the hardest things about living with something like that is the pariah status you assign yourself. This sense of, oh my God, I'm one of the crazy ones. Why can't I just be normal? Why can't I just, you know, enjoy the little things? But everyone's having a problem right now. And yeah. there is that that sort of dark take that, you know, we can sit smugly on our thrones and go, see, we told you everything was awful, but it's <laughs> it's it's more complicated than that. There is just a real sense of knowing that it is okay to be anxious right now, therefore it lowers your anxiety. Are are your kids right near where you are right now? They're like two like a room and a half away. They're in the okay. they're in the dining room in the, okay. the corner of the living room. So you can speak quietly. Speak freely. Yeah. So so are they driving you nuts or are you doing okay? I'm doing okay. We've gotten into a nice little groove where we understand that I'm here for help. We will do some family activities, but I'm not a nonstop jukebox of entertainment. Um, so they understand there's work to be done. Um, but I think they're, I mean, I think they're freaked out. I think this is going to mess with them a little bit. And I think they're all going to have, you know, their version of, you know, where were you when the challenger went down? Where were you during nine 11? And, and you and your wife, Jamie Denbo are, do a lot of on camera acting. Um, is that is the absence of that? Because I assume all production is pretty well shut down right now. Everything's shut down right now. Yeah. yeah. How are you handling that? I mean, not necessarily economically, but just having that that limb of your life be be gone. I went out for a pilot that got shut down anyway this year, and I didn't really love the script. And part of me is now looking at that as sort of like that's what I was I was hanging all my hopes on that. It was, uh, it was striking uh, how much of my self-esteem I wrapped up in this pilot of a show that I probably would not have watched. <laughs> <laughs> not have enjoyed on your own. It was great to talk to my friend John Ross Bowie, but eventually he had to get back to his roles as educator and dad. Can you hang on one second, John? Yeah, sure. Hang on one sec. Hang on no one problem. sec, buddy. Um, you can keep going. You can no, go I longer. Buddy, you can go longer. No, I can't. Buddy, I think you no, can. No, I can't. I'm proud of you, buddy. I really am. I know it's a lot. Thank you to the Bowie Denbo family for their patience. Keep up those studies, kids. Just ahead, we'll visit a guy who still goes to the airport a lot. He just never gets out of his car. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having some laughs on this show. Sometimes it's a way of dealing with depression. It's a way of maybe demystifying it a little bit, making it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use. What to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better.
We're checking in on some friends of the show to see how they're doing at home during this whole thing. Solomon Giorgio is a comedian and writer, and Solomon's been making some videos. This one is called Four Easy Ways to Get Off the Phone Because Your Old Excuses Don't Work. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sorry, I have to take this call. It's my anxiety. So, um, I'm done talking to you. Hey, I gotta go. My favorite commercial is on. You know what? I think I would rather get coronavirus than continue this conversation. Okay. Okay. Love you too, Mom. I asked how he was holding up. Are you worried much about the virus itself? What's going to do? I am very worried because I do have an underlying health issue. I was in the hospital before the quarantine uh, because I um, don't take care, very good care of myself and had a very low hemoglobin. Uh, so in which... There's a fear of that for my part because I just got a blood transfusion and I don't want I want to make sure I get healthier. Uh, and obviously, uh, my mother, who I'm a very big fan of, um, she's not that crazy about me, but it's okay. Uh, <laughs> she's very much it's like especially like uh, an immigrant parent who's from a third world country, trying to explain to them the need to stay home because there's an invisible thing that they don't seem to. It's it's really. I'm very like my one of my brothers is with her and he, he he's dealing with a lot of uh, trials and tribulations of like, hey, don't go outside, old woman, because I want you to live. <laughs> you have to constantly explain to her why she can't do something because she very much doesn't like being told what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and what's your routine? Are you are you leaving the house? Are you going out into the world much? I have I live in L.A. and for the first time uh, I can get back and forth to my house from LAX in less than an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has been the most calming thing I can do. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, I just play the music, get like, get all the way to LAX, completely surprised that I made, made it there in less than 30 minutes and then come back home. <laughs> you just drive to LAX just to go there? Yeah, I have an electric car. I'm not wasting any gas. I might as well give it a go. <laughs> What's the appeal? Is is it just that it represents possible escape or what? Every time I've gone to the airport, because I, I fly so much, yeah. it has never been anything short of the biggest hassle of my life. Because A, I'm not a timely person. Uh, and But to just get there and see something that caused me such like grief and anxiety for so long and to do it with such ease... It's just very relaxing. It calms my nerves. It's like those zombie movies where there's never any traffic and you're like, mm -hmm. yeah, the zombies are a downside, but look at those roads. Yeah, like, look, I can see no one holding anything up. <laughs> awesome. Um, and are you by yourself in your, in your place? I am. I'm solo. I'm alone. Uh, I used to have roommates uh, up until uh, summer of last year. This is my first year living alone ever. And you know what? I think... Uh, I think I can do it. <laughs> yeah. Pets? Any pets? No, I don't even have a plant, John. This is just me hanging out with my, all my thoughts. Nothing to keep alive but myself. So but you... I am a lot to keep alive. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lot to care for. You're charged <laughs> with a big task. Um, so what's, what's a day beyond your, your trip to the airport? Um, most of my routine is um, because I'm, I've 
right before the quarantine, a couple of days before, I actually went completely sober. And I'm now also uh, just quit cigarettes uh, almost two weeks in. Uh, and that preoccupies my time. Like, that's my mental spit. Like that is just saying like, no, like, and it's not like in a bad way. It's, it's, it is a task to be like, you can't do this anymore, but it's also empowering to be alone and have no one else like influence that aspect of myself. And I can very much take care of being sober and take care of quitting cigarettes. So that's, it takes up a lot of more brain space than I expected. Uh, to, to resist those impulses. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just also to do everything necessary to keep yourself preoccupied to avoid those pulses. And all, like, and there is the benefit that like I'm very much was very social in all those things. So not having anyone else around <laughs> kind of yeah. like, like it's the pressure is not as significant as, as it would have been in any other situation. Are you doing any like big projects? I know you've posted some, some videos. Oh yeah, that's look. I um, when I'm by myself, I do that stuff already. I'm just posting the uh, photographic evidence of it. <laughs> <laughs> so they can, people can see that later. Yeah, I like it. for me. I I am very good at being home. It is a time for me to be silly, to be relaxed, and I'm very good. Um, most of my anxiety is stemmed from social interactions. I'm constant need of validation, especially as a performer. And now that I've gotten to a place. Uh, w- where the constant need of validation is um, sort of uh, there's no way to get it from mm-hmm. anyone else that isn't me. <laughs> it's sort of uh, it definitely has put me in a more relaxed state of mind, and I can and I definitely yeah the anxiety that I expected to have in this sort of situation doesn't exist because mine is more applied to social aspects. Well, then do you have any advice? Because I, I think a lot of people that the toughest time is when they're alone, they don't have a distraction, they don't have anything else going on. And, you know, as you said, you don't even have a house plan. And so you're with yourself a lot. How do you, do you have tips on how to get along with that roommate? Um, I think, well, that's the, that's the thing is that I think I works a lot on very much, uh, liking myself and loving myself and giving myself permission more than anything. Um, but also not being hard on myself, which is the biggest thing was like, we, it's very much a time where we're, we're being, a lot of people are being very difficult on themselves and on the people around them. And at some point, uh, you just kind of have to be like, look, I'm going to do the best I can. And in this situation, especially like I'm, yeah, I'm alone. Yeah. It's, I can, I can think about all the terrible things in the world and I have here and there, but it's not, but then at a moment I'm like, do I want to let my last time on this or like, cause that's the thing is like, I get to the point, like these situations where I'm like, you can die here. And do you want your death to be somebody who's pitying themselves or somebody who's enjoying the moment? And at the end of it, I'd rather enjoy the moment. It's important to note that none of these guests ever claim to be doing great. This is not the good life, but they're all getting by. And something that I noticed is that all three of them are leaning on something for a source of strength. It's like a a battery pack. They're all drawing extra power from a particular power source. Anna Marie Cox has her sobriety something she works for and depends on every day in order to live. And that's given her the strength to push through. 
She is then able to do the work to connect with other people to find that humanity that also, in turn, strengthens her sobriety. John Ross Bowie, I think his battery pack is family. It's that online mass through his kid's school that lifts his heart and connects him with other families. He talked about his late parents in New York. His kids were leaning on him during our interview. A family locked up together, that can get dicey, but it can also be centering. It can remind you of who you're doing this for. For Solomon Giorgio, the battery pack, the power source, is himself. He lives alone, and during a lockdown designed to protect your health, he went a couple steps further. He made a big change with alcohol. He quit smoking. If you listen back to my first interview with Solomon, he has always believed in taking stock of his challenges and trying to conquer them. For me, well, I'm a lot like John Ross Bowie. I'm a family man, and there's this instinct I get, I know a lot of parents do, where I'm driving and my kid is in the passenger seat, older kid, mind you, I'm safe, and there's a need to brake suddenly. My arm shoots across their body in the passenger seat like an extra seatbelt. In terms of physics, it's stupid because there's no way that arm protects anything, but I do it because that's what matters the most in that moment. But I have another battery pack, and that's you, the listeners to the show. We make an episode, it goes out over the podcast channels, and then we hear from you on Twitter or Facebook or email that it made a difference. It helped with your mind. I love going to work even if it's in a bedroom closet, and knowing that what we're doing is helping you carry the load. Our show can't solve coronavirus for anyone, but I'm glad to connect with you. Okay, so what about you? What's your battery pack? Ask yourself that. Give it some thought and plug in as much as you can right now. Thank you to Anna Marie Cox, John Ross Bowie, and Solomon Giorgio. You can find longer interviews with them in our archives. On our next episode, Dave Holmes was a star VJ on MTV, a huge success, working his dream job and living his dream life, sort of. I was doing a show called Say What Karaoke. It was a Monday through Friday, half hour, like like a you know you would do a karaoke version of you know Blink One Eighty Two song or whatever. I remember being in like in my dressing room between let's say show four and five of the day and a voice in my head saying you're gonna go back out on that stage and start crying you're like this is all gonna end today like you're gonna go out there and mess this up permanently on camera today The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our production squad for this episode includes Chrissy Pease, Christina Lopez, Phyllis Fletcher, and John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and makeitokay.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. Makeitokay.org has information that can help you and your loved ones starting a conversation on that topic at, yep, that can be awkward. Make It Okay has tips on what to say, what not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. 
you can take the pledge to Make It Okay at makeitokay.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter, and come visit us on Facebook. Just search for the name of the show or for Thwad Balls. From the closet, in my bedroom, I'm John Moe. Bye now. This great big smile is just for show. Sad clown, tell me something I don't know. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know.